Thanks for tuning in to the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast. This is a podcast from Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy, where through the Entrepreneurship and Sustainability Program, we are training the entrepreneurs of the future. I'm your host, Stephen Carter. Today's episode features the chairman and CEO of Procter & Gamble. David Taylor speaks today on aspects related to roles of leadership and casting vision, as well as environmental and social initiatives at the company. This is an episode not to miss. David goes into great detail about the campaigns that he runs at the company and the way in which his role as a leader shapes the ultimate vision and the values of P&G. Joining me today is David Taylor. David is the chairman and CEO of Procter & Gamble, also known as P&G. David, thanks so much for joining me. Happy to be here, Stephen. So, David, before we launch into some of our topics today, um, we're, we're all living in a world that has been impacted by COVID. And everywhere you go, it's COVID. You hear about COVID. You know, from a school side, there are measures in place. And obviously, on the business side, there's measures in place. And I'm, I'm curious, before we get into our, our main topics today, what are, what are some of the challenges or what are some of the aspects you've seen related to COVID that have either been detrimental or beneficial to P&G? Uh, that's a, a big question in many ways because COVID has impacted virtually everybody. And P&G is a global company. We have operations all around the world where are roughly 100,000 people. And so job one when COVID hit was to keep your people safe and the workplaces safe. Job two was to make, pack, and ship the health cleaning and hygiene products that we make that serve literally almost 5 billion consumers will buy a PNG product this year. So we wanted to make sure they were available at a time when, frankly, they needed the most. And the third priority was we wanted to make sure we could serve our communities. And what was interesting in COVID is how much everything kind of collapsed down to those three things. Keep your people safe, take care of your consumers, and take care of your communities. And then we've all had to adapt, just like we are right now, to leveraging technology to do just that. And and I've been, frankly, very pleased and uh, inspired by how people have stepped up to take care of each other around the world. Uh, We've had a, a relatively low incidence in our company all around the world, even in communities that have relatively high community spread, just the way people have taken care of each other. We've all had to learn also how to compensate for the fact that we can't physically be together. I typically travel a great deal around the world, but visit anywhere between 15 to 20 countries a year. And this year, you know, you can't travel outside the country in most places. You're not allowed to. So we've had to leverage technologies to stay connected and still support our people and stay up on the business. Uh, but all that's doable. And the last little quip I'll make uh, or share is, is I was scheduled to visit Asia a couple weeks ago. So we said, well, let's not stop doing that. We'll do a virtual visit. So I spent uh, three hours with the team in the Philippines. We went in stores. We had somebody with an iPhone. We went in the store. I would have visited there. So I got to see what the shelves look like in Manila. And we came back to the office. We talked to the same folks. It wasn't as much as, as powerful as being there, but you could still interact with the team. We went in stores. Then the next uh, day, we had three hours in Pakistan. We went in a Pakistani woman's home. She talked to me just like we are right now. We toured her home. She showed us how her products, how the products she uses and how the products fit in with her life. So we got to still stay close to consumers, go in stores and interact with our people. So in many ways, it's forced us all to be resourceful and find ways still to accomplish what's important. Take care of each other. Take care of your consumers. Take care of your communities. I love that that threefold message and that it starts with safety. You know, I think so often, especially as someone running a, a business, running a company, you know, considering that that profit margin would, would kind of be first. But what you are really emphasizing is safety above all. And I think that sends a great message to the public. It, it, and, and think about it. P&G is a company that's been around 184 years. And, and we understand the company was built because we have motivated people that want to care for others. And so job one is to make sure the health and safety of our people and the health and safety of the workplaces in which we ask them to work is absolutely paramount. And it's interesting by doing that well, how people have stepped up to do the other two. 
Because once you take care of them and you give people the, the support that they need, and if that means they need to work from home, fine, and still get paid. If that means you can come to the office, fine. If that means some hybrid, fine. But let's find out how to take care of people. And then what happens is they step up and they're incredibly motivated to take care of the consumers they know that are counting on them. And then what's been especially exciting is to see how people have found ways to say, we can convert this equipment to make an hand sanitizer. And so a plant in Lima, Ohio, converted a perfume making operation and they were making 45,000 liters of hand sanitizer that were given out. We, we, we were given, we've given thousands of liters to both to Cincinnati, to, uh, to the governor, Mike DeWine, Governor DeWine called and said, you know, can you guys help in this area? We shipped 55 gallon drums so that they could use them in many institutions that were not able to get them, especially back in March, April, and May. Our Gillette people that have the packaging around our razors said we could convert this packaging to face shields, and we've shipped hundreds of thousands of face shields in both Boston and Cincinnati and donated them to the hospitals because they said we, we have capabilities that can help in meeting the, the personal protective equipment that frankly was in short supply, especially back in the March, April, May, June timeframe. And then you need face masks. If you remember back four or five months ago, they were hard to get. Right. So we were able to source mask making equipment. We have now, I think, 15 or so mask making lines around our, our company. We don't sell any of it. We've donated millions of masks, including hundreds of thousands in Cincinnati. We've given away millions around the world. Plus, we've outfitted every PNG facility with masks. When you come in the door, there's masks there free for anybody that comes in the building, including sending them to the homes of our employees in the U.S. so they can help keep their families safe. All of that's built on a foundation of job one, take care of your people. David, I, I love, I absolutely love the direction this is going because this leads directly into one of the main topics that we're going to be discussing today, which is the role of leadership. And this sort of thing does not happen without a clearly defined vision of a leader who sees the importance of safety, the importance of consumer, the importance of community really above certain other aspects that other leaders might prioritize. Now, you've been at P&G for close to 40 years. I mean, this, this, is, this is quite a career. You've worked in manufacturing, product supply, marketing, and now you are the chairman and CEO of the company. This is a company that boasts the fact that nearly every family in America has at least one of their products in their homes. And, and let's be honest, most of us have a lot more than just one. So you, you have learned lessons about leadership that I, I just can't wait to dive into. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because really in, in today's society, the role of the leader is, is kind of glamorized. You know, we, we, we publicize and we highlight these leaders so often that we often forget what being a leader actually involves. So I'm, I'm curious, David, could you share some of the life lessons that you have learned as a leader to all of the aspiring leaders listening in on this podcast? Happy to. And, and again, the lessons that I've learned have been taught by many outstanding leaders that went before me. So the, these are lessons learned from others. And, and frankly, one of the things that I'd, I'd recommend to everybody is it doesn't matter where you learn them, just learn as much as you can and put it into practice to help others. So, uh, and, and I'll, I'll kind of walk through some of the many experiences I've had and what it taught me. I mean, early in my career, uh, I was a shift team manager uh, in Greenville, North Carolina. I was a manufacturing uh, engineer, my first assignment. I'm an engineer at Duke University. And uh, in that assignment on third shift, when the line went down, Nobody cared what degree you had or, frankly, what your background was. What they cared is, could you help solve the problem? And out of that, what I found is I didn't have to have the answer. I had to work with the team that together we had to solve the problem. And out of that, the learning was that every single individual can make a difference. Don't have that biases get in the way because of titles or any other label people put on people that limit what you think they can do. Instead, empower people to help. Trust and, and enable. And so every single pe person can make a difference. The second is that none of us are smarter than all of us. And it's another very powerful lesson. And, and this came, I, went, I was transferred uh, many 20 plus years ago to work in greater China. Uh, my family and I moved to live in Hong Kong and I worked in, in China, in Guangzhou, China for three and a half years. When I went there, I went to a business I'd never worked on at a level I'd never been in a country that I'd, I'd it was the first time I'd ever been there. 
And, and what I found was very quickly, while you didn't need to know everything, collectively we were able to solve problems and work together and, and deliver great outcomes. So again, this, none of us are smarter than all of us. Another one is that many, in many ways, the biggest barriers we face are the ones that are self-imposed. You know, how many times have you heard someone say, and it may be a student or other person say, I can't. And, and to me, there's a powerful word that an individual taught me a while back in a, in a class called growth mindset. It said, when someone says they can't, just add one word and it changes completely and it opens up things. And that is yet. Mm. I, I can't do that. And just yet. But then what happens is it opens up the mind to say yet means there's probably a path to address that. And it starts, you start thinking about possibilities. And to me, part of what leaders do is leaders see a problem and instead of overdwelling on it, they learn that you have to state it. A problem well stated is half solved. So understand your problem. A problem half stated is well solved. Said by somebody famous, don't remember the person. Once you stated the problem, then all the energy ought to be to marshal the resources to figure out how do you address that and achieve an outcome that's good for all stakeholders. Uh, another one is many people look at something that goes wrong as a failure and say the only failure is an absence of learning because if you can learn something from something that doesn't didn't work that you can apply to something next for a better solution then you didn't fail it was just a journey on a path to success anybody in the entrepreneurial field knows that you fail many times but it's not failing it's just understanding what doesn't work there's famous things said by Thomas Edison and others. I didn't fail a thousand times. I just understood a thousand ways that things didn't work until I find the one that did. And to me, have people that have that motivation. And one of the most powerful lessons to me, though, is you don't have to be right. You have to see that the right thing is done. And to me, it's such an empowering thing not to have to be right. Leaders at times try to maintain this facade that I know what to do and I make the decision and you sit here with some, you know, uh, ability to, to, to divine what is right to do. And in many cases, what your role is, is to listen and use what I call integrative thinking, which is to surround yourself with people that are different from you, diversity, because that allows you to access the experiences and knowledge of people that have had different life experiences than you have. And if you, if you give them the respect to truly listen, not waiting to speak that many people do, but listen for what they say, and can understand if they have a different point of view, if you can walk down their ladder of inference and understand why did you come to that conclusion, you'll find that they usually access different experiences and facts than you had. And if you can then take that on board, you'll likely come to a better third way. And it's a powerful thing that to me the most effective leaders do is they don't try to be right, they try to get the right thing done and they empower others to work with them to achieve that. Now, I, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but you, you made several references to this is what effective leaders do or other effective leaders or leaders that you've seen or admired. Can I, can I just ask, who are some of those leaders? Who, who are some of those people that you would say, this person has been an inspiration, maybe past, maybe present, who you would say that person is an, in, uh, is an effective leader? There's, there's many, many, many. And, and unfortunately, many of those are, there's people both in my career and in experiences, whether it was at school back, frankly, I can think of a high school teacher that I had, which is many years ago for me, uh, that, that, that taught, it was calculus. It was, it was a senior year. And it was somebody that enabled in a way that frankly, stimulated curiosity, not being right or wrong, but stimulated curiosity. I can even go back further uh, for, for uh, a teacher that I had in, I think it was fifth or sixth grade or seventh grade that, that didn't hold people back if they were curious, let them learn at their own pace. And the whole idea that they had was how do you stimulate curiosity and learning versus getting the right answer? And to me, because lifelong learners tend to be very good leaders because they're constantly taking on new information. You know, what you get in school, whether it's high school or even college, is building a foundation to learn what you'll need later in life. It's not that you learn what you need later in life. You learn how to learn. In fact, the last thing I'll say on this one, uh, and it was from Thomas uh, Friedman that wrote the book, The World is Flat. He was speaking one time. Uh, we brought him in to speak at PNG, and I won't tell the story well, but something to the effect of someone asked him, uh, uh, Tom, I've got a, a son or daughter going to college. What should I have them study? Thinking that, you know, the world is flat. He would be able to see the future and say, you know, you ought to study to be an engineer or this. 
He said, I'd instruct them to get in the longest line for the, for the, for teacher, the teacher that has the longest line to drop ad, to, to add the course. Why? He said, what you want is someone that'll be, that will cause people to want to learn. And if you can get someone that's curious and they gets a teacher that unlocks your child to your, your, your uh, son or daughter's curiosity to go learn, that's what's going to serve them best. Not a specific skill that I can tell you about, you know, to go take today in college. But that's one of the things. So I can think about a person that's right here in Cincinnati, John Pepper, uh, which was the former CEO and chairman, which is somebody that his whole life, even today, is serving the community. John called me, I'm, I'm chairing the United Way campaign for Cincinnati because John Pepper called me up and said, David, uh, United Way right now needs more than ever to raise money to serve the people in Cincinnati and who better than P&G and yourself to go ahead and, and lead this because you can marshal the resources at P&G. Not that you'll be able to do that much, but P&G has lots of resources that we can bring to bear. Social media capability, communication capability. And, and so, uh, but John is, is doing this 15 years or 20 years after he retired because he cares. And, and, and people like that inspire me and others to do more because I see the role modeling that he's done his entire career. And there's many others like this. You can see those in, frankly, at CHCA. You can see those kind of people. Frankly, uh, many of our families, whether it's parents or, or other family members, that, that serve other people. And out of that, you feel motivated to do the same. And to me, those are the kind of leaders that I, I watch and learn from is people that are putting them, putting others uh, ahead of their own needs in order to serve a greater good, be it a family, be it a club, be it a community, frankly, be it a company or be it a country. Now, this is fascinating to me because you are defining leadership in a way that is is a little countercultural. I asked you to list some effective leaders and you're listing teachers. You're listing even elementary teachers, but then you're defining this as people who fulfill a mentorship role, people who, people who, in your words, stimulate curiosity, people who help create lifelong learners. So this idea of leadership is, it, it's, it's just fascinating because it, it really shows that all of us can be leaders in our mentorship roles to other people. So one, one additional question I have for you about this is, how does vision play a part in that? We hear a lot about vision today with leaders. Leader has to have the vision. The leader has to craft of the vision and then articulate the vision over and over and over again. So how does, in, in your mind, to what extent does crafting and communicating the vision play a part of your regular role as a leader? Uh, I'm going to use two words that are important here. One is vision and one is strategy. And to me, the vision that a leader needs to set is a broad direction that's aspirational and captures hopefully the kind of the hearts and minds of people. And I'll give you an example outside work, but of something that gets in the same sustainability space. Uh, uh, I, I chair something called the Alliance in Plastic Waste, which is a global organization that's trying to get plastic waste out of the environment, out of the oceans, out of the rivers. And, and there's four, now we're up to 47 companies. We've raised a billion dollars that'll be invested over the next five years. And our, our vision for that is to eliminate plastic waste completely in the environment. So there's no waste in the environment. It's all put to good use or reused. That's a vision. Now, that's nice. Everybody says, wow, that would be wonderful if we could do that. Then what's powerful, so it's an important step, but it's, it's, a, it's a relatively small step in many ways. Then the strategy is the set of actions when taken together and executed well, will bring it to life and make the vision or move you toward the vision. And often to me, there's lots of people that lay these lofty visions, world peace, you know, we'll get rid of plastic, we're going to solve this, uh, we're going to stop climate change. And those are all good and, and they tend to be aspirational. To me, the hard work is laying out a strategy, mobilizing people, and then leading the execution in a way that you achieve measurable outcomes. And I can tell you, in a company role like P&G, it's, it's, the, the, the vision part is important that you recognize that you've got to have something that captures people's hearts and minds. It's got to be more than make money. Uh, yes, it's certainly it's an important role because we have shareholders, but there's a much bigger role for P&G that's caused me to be excited about this company for over 40 years. And that is the idea that we can touch and improve the lives of billions of consumers every year in small but meaningful ways. How cool is it to work for a company where 5 billion people 
will, will, will purchase a PNG product because it fits into their life in a way that makes it a little bit better. It makes them feel a little better about themselves. It may take care of their skin, take care of their hair, take care of their clothes in a way that they have better self-esteem. It, it can communicate a message like we do on some of our, our brands that elevate how you feel about yourself and self-esteem. We have a voice that can impact others. So the idea of touching and improving the lives of the consumers, that's something that's aspirational. The strategy though, how to do that, the set of actions when taken together and executed well will give us competitive advantage so that we can sustain both our shareholders and the many stakeholders that count on us, including 100,000 employees in many communities and suppliers and customers is the hard work that really drives it. So you've got to have a, you've got to have a vision beyond make money, but you've also then got to take that into something that drives measurable outcomes that deliver for all your stakeholders, not just your shareholders. Well, I think it's pretty clear that you don't become a company that lasts for 184 years if your vision is solely to make money. So what you're really describing here, this vision, and the way you laid down the need to touch and improve the lives of billions of people, that is what so many of, of, of our students now are, are, are discussing. That's your why. And that seems to be what really is driving the heart of what you're doing. And uh, my next question for you revolves around that topic, and it has to do with the author Simon Sinek, who is famous for the book Start With Why and Understanding the Why Behind a Company. In his most recent book, which is called The Infinite Game, he describes these two different approaches to business where the finite game is focusing on that sort of immediate end. Maybe it's just the profit margin or, or aspects like that. But the infinite game goes on and on long after the individual. Now, your company... P&G started back in 1837, and clearly P&G is participating in the long game. Clearly, this is not about the short, finite game. So my question for you is, as CEO, how does this knowledge, the knowledge that ultimately P&G will need to continue long after your role has ended, this is a company that will go on and on and on, how does that impact you as a leader with regard to the decisions that you make? It, it, it's, it's another big question. In many ways, to me, the, the, the measure of how effective I am and frankly, the leadership team that I lead is not only what we deliver this month or quarter or a year, but what, what happens the next two or three years after you leave the role. Uh, what you're hitting, the, the infinite game for P&G revolves around a couple fundamental beliefs and actions. One is we have a purpose, value, and principles. We call it the PVP, purpose, values, and principles, that I think 99,000 people can tell you what they are. Every year we do an employee survey, and almost the highest rated area is I understand and support the PVP. I work for a company that has a clear purpose, serve consumers, and it is, we will provide branded products and services of superior quality and value that improve the lives of the world's consumers now and for generations to come. That's what we're about. That's our purpose. We've got a clear set of values and those values are integrity, leadership, trust, a passion for winning uh, and leadership. And then we've got some principles in how we operate, treating each other with respect and those principles. That's the infinite game because if you've got an aspiration of serving consumers, you have a set of principles that guide the way you act, then you'll deal with all the things that change over time. The world was very different in 1837. It was very different when we operated during world wars back you know, 100 years ago. It's very different than how we operate today in COVID than it was a year ago, and it'll be different in a year. We have to be able to adapt and constantly adjust, but what we don't change, the infinite game is about having a very, you're grounded very clearly on something that, that is frankly, it transcends time and our purpose, values, and principles will be here 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And, and a, a story that I'll tell you, uh, a while back, I had the chance to talk to some members of the Gamble family of Procter & Gamble. Now, they haven't been involved in the management of the company for, I think, maybe in the 40s or 50s. So call it 70, 80 years. I don't know any Gambles or Procters. They're not involved in P&G. have it in the 40 years that I've been with the company. But we had an occasion a while back where we were calling some of our larger share owners just to check in with them because of uh, something that was going on in the company. And, and I talked to one that was an 80 plus year old member of the Gamble family. And, and in talking to them, one of the things I, I was telling about P&G is more long-term oriented. At that time, we were having what was called a proxy contest where uh, there was an activist investor that wanted to get on. And so we were reaching out saying, 
you know, we don't want to take short-term measures that may be good in the short run to save money, but may compromise the long-term competitiveness of our company because we worry about the long-term. And he said, David, I'm glad to see you're worried about year, a year, five years, 10 years, because in our family, we measure success in generations. They're the sixth generation, I think they said, of the Gamble family. And we benefited from the stock that came back from the original great, 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 great grandfather that started the company. So we're a company that does worry about generations. I want the next generation of P&G leaders to be able to take this company to new heights. And to do that well, we have to be willing to invest in things that won't pay out during the tenure in which I'm in this role. We will invest millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in R&D that will help us five years and 10 years from now, as opposed to try to harvest everything now at the expense of the future of the company. And to me, P&G leaders well before me have done the same. They've invested so that the next generation, we would be stronger than ever, which is why our company right now is the highest valuation it's ever been in our history. And it ought to be higher in 10 years from now and higher 20 years from now, because we will invest and grow it and we'll do it the right way. So we serve all stakeholders, our employees benefit, communities benefit, frankly, all the people, including being a good steward of the planet's resources. All that is part of, to me, the infinite game, recognizing that you've got to worry about 20 years, 50 years, 100 years from now, and act responsibly, which is the PVP, to me, guides us. Purpose, values, principles. So you you mentioned acting responsibly, stewarding the planet's resources. And then when you were communicating the company's why, again, that idea of touching and improving the lives of billions of consumers. And really, as you discuss the infinite game, you're considering the billions of consumers both now, quite literally living, but also the ones who will be living years and years from now on a planet that really on some level is compromised through its use of natural resources. I mean, time and again in this interview so far, we've heard you talk about conservation efforts, about reducing plastic waste, about the need for environmental um, change and aspects along this. And you, in your uh, tenure, your role as leader at the company, You've been able to champion several remarkable initiatives along this environmental um, arena and really both environmental and social. But starting with environmental, sustainability has now become a key aspect of P&G. And one of the goals stated on the website is you have the goal of reducing our footprint one step at a time. Now, there are a list of sustainability goals on PNG's website, and they're, they're called your Sustainability Goals 2030. Many of these, 2030, um, many of these are very specific, you know, because I'll be honest, when I was looking at those goals, I was, kind of, I was kind of expecting, like you mentioned before, those lofty vision goals, like create a better planet, better world. I was both surprised and delighted to see specific goals. And I'm talking like numbers. Uh, you had one on there, increase our use of Ford Stewardship Council certified fiber to 75% across all family care brands by 2025. Um, reduce use of virgin petroleum plastic and packaging by 50%, carbon neutral for the decade. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the reason behind this? I mean, how did this sustainability initiative even start at P&G? We've had first, we believe sustainability, both environmental and social sustainability needs to be built into how we operate the company, not bolted on on the side where you operate your business and then you hire some people here to do the things that, that would cause, you know, any group to feel that you're at least doing the minimum. So we build it in and, and I'll talk later about what we do in the diversity inclusion or equality area. But in sustainability, the idea was, how do we be good stewards? If I go back to the original uh, statement I made on our purpose. It is to improve the lives of consumers now and for generations to come. The way you're going to do it for generations to come is you've got to innovate for your products, but you also have to take care of the planet's resources. So what we did before we had a goal to 2020, and then as we came up to 2020, uh, our, our chief sustainability uh, leader helped get a group of people together and looked at what we thought we would be able to do, what would be very stretching and impactful. And we had a set of goals and then we moved it further. But in P&G, where you don't believe in setting goals, we don't intend to deliver. So you'll see things that are specific, time-bounded and measurable. Not, you know, we want to be good stewards of the world's resources. That sounds good, but what are you going to go do about it? And so whether you see the FSC certified pulp or whether you see the fact that we want to reduce our greenhouse gas by 50% and then do natural climate solutions for the balance. So we're working right now with the World Wildlife Fund and Conservation International 
to be able to invest money that helps offset if there's some area that we're unable to completely eliminate because there's not renewable sources available yet, the technology is not at that point, then there's things we can do to offset it and not just write a check. We can work with Conservation International and World Wildlife Fund to, to help and protect major spaces that will help address the issue of greenhouse gases in the world. And so the idea is PNG needs to take the things that they can directly address. We can redesign our products to use less virgin plastic. We can work with and help fund projects that generate more recycled plastic so you can use post-consumer use plastic in your formulas. We can do those things. We have a project that's up and running now where we're collecting beach plastic and putting a percent of that in head and shoulders in Europe. So there's head, the beach plastics coming off. We buy it, process it, and put it in products so it gets a second life. So there's a variety of things we can do. And what we want to do more and more is build it into how we innovate and make that part of what we do as a company, which is you want to find environmentally responsible solutions. And then on top of that, one of the biggest environmental impacts of any range of products in the consumer space is the consumer use, not necessarily the manufacturing. We can offset the carbon footprint of our called scope one and scope two, which is what we do in our direct manufacturing facilities. But there's still the carbon footprint of use of our products. If, if you wash your clothes in hot water, you're using a much bigger uh, and you have a much bigger environmental impact than if you wash in cold water. Frankly, it's, it, it'll offset more than probably the cost to manufacture, the, the environmental impact to manufacture. If you wash your dishes on a, on a fast cycle, you can save a great deal of water. Uh, we've got advertising money now that shows, it's, I think it's 90 seconds of an open tap when people wash in, in, a, in a sink uses more water than a load of dishes in a dishwasher. So we can design formulations that will allow cleaning at lower temperature and faster cycle. We can make a huge impact on the environmental impact of use of that product. So you look at things like Tide. Tide is formulated in a way where in cold water you get outstanding cleaning. And that allows around the world, we run campaigns to encourage people to use the energy cycle and cooler water which dramatically reduces the environmental impact of, of that specific task. So part of what we need to do is own improving our supply chain by being responsible, making sure both people are treated right and their environmental practices, things like the Forestry Stewardship Council, how we manufacture using as much recycled content, renewable energy and natural climate solutions, and then the way we communicate to our consumers to help them consume responsibly. And the last one I'll mention on here, which is one we've worked with the world, uh, actually with the World Economic Forum, and we actually I talked about it at a, at a panel at Davos two years ago, and that is a project called um, both Loop and 50 Liter. Loop is the idea of instead of having disposable uh, uh, products, have product or, or packaging, have reusable packaging. So we've developed with another company, reusable packaging. Think about the old milk bottle example many, many years ago where you got the milk bottles delivered to your doorstep, you used the product, you put it back on the doorstep, they came, sanitized it, refilled it, and you got milk delivered again, but you didn't throw away the bottle uh, because it was a glass bottle. We're designing now packaging and we've got tests running now in New York and Paris. We've got a company we, we, we sell to the consumers, they pay a deposit and they get a, a really nice durable, it may be made out of aluminum or something else, package for a variety of different categories. We've got other companies participating. And then a company, if the consumer buys it, use it, when she finishes or he finishes, he or she would put it on their door, would send it out in a tote, it would come back and get sanitized, refilled, and then sent back. So you don't throw away any of the packaging. Now we'll see if we can develop an economically viable model that the consumers accept but it's an illustration of trying to find a, a lasting solution. And we're doing the same on water usage, which is we have a project called 50 Liter Home that we're doing starting in South Africa, working with a variety of stakeholders and nonprofits. And the idea is right now, we're getting near water zero in many municipalities around the world. There's no longer gonna be enough water at the current rate of consumption. So what if we could design a home that could use 50 liters of water for a whole day and have a good quality of life? So when you, when you took a shower, go through the water, be captured, filtered back, sanitized, and reused somewhere else in the home. So you, you use products, use water in a way that protected, to me, the usage and didn't uh, dispose of it. And if we could do that, it would help many, many municipalities because the water basins in many places are getting depleted. 
So PNG is participating in many of these breakthrough ideas at the same time saying there's some measurable things we can do over the next 10 years with what's in our control. But let's also participate with other stakeholders, nonprofits, governments, and other motivated companies to solve some of the biggest challenges on things like water usage and or packaging waste. Now, this, this is really interesting to me because on some level, there's not a large incentive for a company like P&G to go all in on an initiative like sustainability. Now, when, when I say that, I'm, I'm speaking primarily of a financial incentive because you know your target demographic who really is invested in sustainability more and more are the millennials, the younger generations, but a lot of your consumers are not necessarily going to be people who say, I'm going to make my decision on these products based on sustainability. So if I'm thinking as a shareholder, if I'm thinking of someone who's concerned only in the financial success of P&G, I might be saying to you, I mean, David, let's, let's like, you know, put on the show, you know, let's, let's have sustainability on our website, but I mean, let's not exactly go to these lengths to actually do all these pieces. Why all of that effort to really, I mean, I mean, why, why the buy-in? Why so invested in sustainability? To me, it, it is, uh, if you, again, if you go back to what we're about as a company, if you're about serving consumers now and for generations to come, anybody that's paid attention to the science will understand we have a real issue. Climate change is real and it's impacting both ourselves, it'll impact our kids, our grandkids, and generations to come. PNG plays a role. If, if all you have to do is watch any kind of either social media or news and see what's happening in Southeast Asia with plastic waste in the ocean, it's going all around the world. It's affecting the, the uh, certainly all of us. Uh, there's a statistic that was something like by 2050, I believe there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish if we don't do something differently. So it, this is not uh, 500 years away. This is on us now. And so P&G and other companies need to work together because I do believe one of the greatest sources and forces of good can be business because we have the resources, both people, technology, and the financial resources to make a difference. In many cases, governments don't. And so, but if you take, P if you take responsible companies like P&G working with wonderful nonprofits like World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International, on the social side, United Way, and many others, and then you take any motivated governments that want to work with you, you can do amazing things. Uh, the, the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, we've got 46 companies now that have put up, we're, we're allocating $100 million roughly a year to fund circular investable solutions to getting collecting plastic waste, processing it, and generating a saleable output so that we can, instead of consumers or people throwing it into the river, they, they can bring it to a place or there can be a collection process that collects it. In the U.S., we're spoiled. We can put our recyclables in our kitchen and put it out. Somebody will come collect it. In many parts of the world, nobody collects it. You know, if you go into Indonesia, we've got a project going in a place called Jimbrana. If you go there and say, ask the people in the community of the village, why are you throwing it in the river? They go, where else do you want me to put it? Nobody collects it in our community. So when we finish using something, we can leave it in our yard, but then it, 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 it dirties our yard. And so what they do is they go to the nearby river and you can put it in the river because the river takes it away. And so no one else is going to take it away. And then the river feeds the ocean. The ocean goes around the world. It harms fish. It may affect our food supply over time. So we've got to find a solution. And the municipalities in many of these poor areas don't have the money to fund a uh, recycling facility. So then organizations like the Alliance to End Plastic Waste are funding recycling centers. And then that, the output generates money that pays for people to collect it. It creates jobs for people that don't have jobs. It takes, now there's a motivation not to throw it away, but to collect it, process it. But you've got to generate the demand because if there's not a demand for the product at the other end, no one's going to invest the capital that it takes. So we're investing up to $100 million a year to de-risk these establish a circular solution, de-risk it so that other investors can come in and scale it to communities like that, like Jimbrana, around the world. That's an example to me of, of P&G and others stepping up to find circular, investable solutions to some of the toughest problems we face. Plastic waste is one of them. Certainly the broader topic of climate change and greenhouse gas emissions 
is one of them as well. And we're involved in both of those. And water is the third one. Huge. We're involved in that as well. Really, what you're describing here is business, as you said, as a source of good. And you even contrasted this on some level with governments or other aspects where typically we in our society would say, well, if something has to change, it has to be governmental policy. If something has to change, it has to be this particular group. We don't always hear people say, if something has to change, it has to be the businesses, the businesses who are doing some good. But hearing this from you, it seems as if P&G sees itself not necessarily as a business solely for business, but a business to affect change, to affect environmental change and, uh, and obviously social change as well, which is a big topic for P&G and I know for you personally. Um, back in 2014 is when P&G ran the campaign Like a Girl. And I, I remember I remember seeing this commercial when it first aired. Um, I, am, I am a father. Uh, my, my daughter is now nine. And I still get chills when I watch this commercial. It's it's moving. It's powerful. And it, it, it single-handedly changed an expression and therefore changed a culture. And we, we forget, at least I did when I was watching it, I, I forgot this was an ad for a product because to me it wasn't. This was an ad for a social change, for an initiative. And, and I felt the same thing um, so, you know, on that gender piece, I felt the same thing on the diversity piece with that campaign, The Talk, where, you know, you, you have this story that's being told. And, and as a consumer, as an audience member, I'm always drawn to story. And the story pulls you in and you realize there is inequality. There is, there is a problem and there's something that we can do about it. And then at the end of these commercials and these campaigns, you see P&G and you're like, oh, wow, because I'm invested in this. And they're invested in this, and they're affecting social change. So my, my question for you, P&G in this way is, is shifting from purely providing consumer products to actively changing consumer culture. How does this happen? I mean, what, what does that look like? I, I'm just curious to get inside the mind when this idea even comes up at P&G. How does a campaign like this even get started? It, it starts with, again, if you go to the fundamental premise of the company is to serve consumers. We're in consumer homes a lot now. COVID has obviously reduced that, but we can still do it virtually and do virtually. And one of the things that's very real is consumers today, and this is good, are more and more concerned. And they tell us they expect more from the brands they want to support and the companies they want to support. They're expecting companies to step up and make a difference and have a point of view. So part one, I don't believe it's okay not to. Secondly, our values, go back to our principles, values, and purpose. If you have a fundamental belief of respect for all others, and that's not happening. If you think about like a girl, that phrase, if you go back at the time we started that campaign, I think it was only 19% of people associated like a girl in a positive context. It was used as an insult. It was demeaning. It was frankly demoralizing to many, many uh, girls. And to me, the Always brand and part of its mission is to help elevate and, and, and help girls through puberty into adulthood and have products that can help them, but also messaging and the equity of the brand is built on a very positive impact. And so what they, what they did, and they did a beautiful job is they developed a campaign that elevated the like a girl phrase to positive. And today, I think in the most recent survey, 76% of people see like a girl is positive. And well, you see, I, 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 let me stop you for just a second. You said 76% yes, versus 19%. That, yes. That's huge. It is huge. And if you think about it, you look at the other actions, whether it's, I think, our secret brands supported the, the soccer team and, and, and gave money. You'll see a lot of different things. And the idea, and you see more and more, frankly, people are recognizing that if, if, if we can create an environment where girls stay more active in sports, it helps build confidence, it helps teach teamwork, it helps teach leadership. And, and when, when girls were critiqued, like a girl, caused people to exit playing sports, team sports, development that occurred to other boys wasn't happening. And, and the girl may wanted to have played, but felt insulted and demeaned and not supported. We ran a campaign uh, with one of our big customers, Walmart, where we went in in each state and, and you may have seen this commercial, if not, it's a wonderful one. It's a, a film 
that show we go into a locker room and you look at the girls' locker room versus the boys, the girls' locker room is awful shape. Terrible facilities, the uniforms are torn and, and, and you know, sewn by the probably parents of the, uh, of the players. And so we went in with Walmart and funded a remake and made them look like an NBA locker room with their names on the locker, put a whole new locker, funded new uniforms. And, and it's just a beautiful film. And, and, and you interview the girls after it, and they felt special. They felt respected and empowered. And they went out and played their hearts out. And what it does is it builds, to me, teamwork, leadership. But it starts with respect, respect for the girls. And respect doesn't start with insults. It starts with support because the, the, the boys aren't getting insulted that way. Why would the girls? And we had rationalized in our culture in many ways these behaviors. We ran another one that we caught a lot of negative feedback for on Gillette, on toxic masculinity. Uh, and on that one, it was the same thing, which is in many ways people have rationalized it's okay to bully, it's okay to uh, do, do a number of behaviors that demean women. And we said, that, no, it's not okay. And, and we just play back what we had learned from talking to people. And there was an outpouring at first of people, you, you know, people got upset. I got all kinds of email with not like nice language. But then there was this bigger outpouring of people that says, at last, somebody's communicating what's really happened in this country. And it's playing back reality. The same thing is on the talk. We caught a lot of flack initially when we aired the talk, which was a story, a film that, that highlights frankly, a talk that many, many African-American parents have with their kids about how to stay safe. And it is a legitimate, real talk that you heard through consumer research. And we weren't saying anybody's bad or good. We said, this is real. And what happens is the film generated dialogue. Dialogue leads to understanding, and understanding can lead to action. And to me, a lot of positive things have happened. We then did the look, which you may have seen, which is an African-American man going through his day and all the looks that he gets and you talk to a number of African-American men and they say, that's very real. David, if I put a hoodie on and walk out, people are suspect, they're concerned. And if you're a bigger man, even more so. And, and then at the very end of the film, you see a courtroom and you're probably expecting to see that person as the defendant and he's the judge and he sits down and I'll rise. And it talks about, you know, we need to look past stereotypes and start to see people as people. And then the last one we aired recently, and it was aired, I think we debuted it on Oprah's special uh, uh, or Gail King's special recently, and, and it's called The Choice. And, and a lot of people aren't racist, but now we have to be even further. We have a choice to be against racism, to stand up against bias, and to support people and support each other and to see difference as a chance to learn, not difference as a threat. And, and so the films are meant to communicate what I think is a positive social message. And it recognizes that, frankly, consumers want to support brands and companies that are aligned with their values. And I think more and more people want to be positive in, in all of these areas, whether it's on the, the gender area or on racial equality, and face up to, yes, we have issues in our country. Every country has issues. And the best way to solve a problem is to face up to it and then work together and then develop, you know, proactive solutions. And that's what we want to participate in with others. But these films to me are positive, uh, at times a little controversial. They're not political. They're about values. And we're trying to make sure that we lift up the values of the company so that people can choose. Do you want to support those kind of brands and companies? And we believe that broadly, they will. And certainly that's been our experience to date. Now, in hearing you explain that, it was interesting to hear the transition from commercial to film. And I noticed as you were speaking, you, you started, you know, you referenced the first one, the commercial, and then you quickly said the film, the film. And then by the end, it was the film. And I, I really like the use of that word because these to me don't feel like commercials. They're not advertising a product. They are a film expressing, as you mentioned, a value, a belief, a principle there's that moment in the talk where the mother is sitting in the car with her daughter and the daughter's driving and, and she's like, okay, now we need to talk about what's going to happen when you get pulled over and, and they're going back and forth. And finally the daughter's like, mom, I, I'm going to be okay. And the mom just kind of stops and the daughter looks at her and says, right. And there's just that, that moment that to me, you know, that that's like a short film you see at the Oscars for crying out loud. You know I mean? That's moving and you don't get that from a regular commercial. Now, 
you've you've laid out a, a vision for you know sustainability. You, you you've talked about these these social initiatives. There are other aspects that I know you personally are involved with, and that you are very passionate about. And one of those um, is you leading the United Way campaign for Greater Cincinnati, as well as the Capital Campaign for Free Store Food Bank. These are community involvement issues. And you mentioned that at the very start, community. And you keep saying community. So my, my question is, why is community involvement so important to you? Uh, a variety of things. First, I believe, it, again, it fits with the values, which is one of the core values also of, that I have personally. And it fits with the company, which is if you touch it, you make it better. If you're in a community, be a positive contributor to the community. And frankly, you know, Frank, our company, our employees, myself, we're blessed with the opportunity to work for a very principled, high values company. And we ought to then share that in ways that make sense, uh, that are consistent with our company. Uh, early, my first, I, I go back to a story when I first started the company in 1980. Uh, I was volunteering for a group and the company encouraged as a new employee. I was working lots of hours, but also they, they encouraged us to be involved in the community. So I was volunteering. I think it was for a chamber of commerce effort. And we had a Baptist preacher, preacher come speak to us. And, and I remember these words. And, and again, I won't get it exactly right, but he said something. There's people that live in a community. There's people that live off the community and there's people that live for the community. Be a person that lives for your community. And to me, I found that, that broad message to be a very powerful one, which is what you find is when you give, and you know this better probably than I, uh, the more you give, the more you receive uh, in terms of you, you get the, the, the positive feeling that you're making a difference. And frankly, that's more motivating than many other things in life. And what I found throughout my career, I've, my wife and I and our family, have, we've lived in eight places. We started in Greenville, North Carolina. We moved to Michigan and Georgia, then Pennsylvania, then Cincinnati, then Hong Kong, then Geneva, then back to Cincinnati. So we've had life experiences all over the world. And we found no matter where we go, you find good people. If you go in with the belief that, that, that folks are good, you want to trust them and you want to learn from them, then they embrace you. And that's been true when we were in greater China. That was Hong Kong, China, and Taiwan. It was true when we moved to Europe. You know, many of these differences that people see as threats aren't threats. They're frankly opportunities to learn about different cultures and people. And as soon as you put the guard down and open up, that's what I found people do as well. And so the idea of being in a community and not wanting to have a positive contribution just doesn't make sense to me. If you're going to be in a community, what you want to do is learn from it and contribute to it. Uh, Cincinnati is our home. And so for P&G, it's a natural. We've, we were started on the banks of the Ohio River uh, by our founders. And Cincinnati has supported our community, our, our company, and we support our community. And so the when when asked if I would consider moving up, I was going to run the United Way campaign in a couple of years. They said, this is a really important year because of lots of things that have happened both in the United Way and, and just the, the, frankly, very difficult place many, many of our citizens are in. Uh, myself and, frankly, to be fair, many people within PNG. So all the things we're talking about are largely delivered by PNG people. It's not David. It's a leadership team and a broad employee base of high values, achievement-oriented people. That's who we hire at PNG. Uh, and, and those folks have done amazing work. My role is to help certainly make some decisions, but is to bring people together against priorities that we set. And one of the important things we do is we set a strategy and a set of clear priorities. And those clear priorities of taking care of people, make, pack, and ship the products that consumers need right now, and taking care of communities, then our people have brought it to life in just wonderful ways. And you see that, whether it's United Way, I think we're going to see that on people supporting the Free Store Food Bank and many others. And these are important because there's those, frankly, that for whatever reason may have been marginalized or something didn't go right in their life, and we can help. And I think, you know, certainly I feel myself, my family have been very blessed, and you want to make a difference to those that you can. And, and I'm, I'm fortunate I work for a company that I think is a very values-based company, and I work in a community that's very generous. And my belief is that we're going to rise and generate $50 million of support for this community in a world of COVID. And people probably thought we'd be down dramatically. And we just cannot let that happen. Uh, 
when people say we can't, it's not yet. We'll figure it out. <laughs> We've got work exactly. to do. And we have gaps and we'll work on it. But we're going to do the best we can. And I think, again, people will step up and they'll, they'll make a difference. Well, David, I mean, this this is nothing short of inspiring, both for myself and I, I speak for the listeners of this podcast as well. You've been more than generous with your time, and I've just loved learning more about you and your vision for the company. In closing, I do have one final thing to ask you. Uh, the author, Jim Collins, author of Good to Great, has developed this acronym for leaders. Uh, these are leaders who dream big for their respective organizations. He calls it the BHAG. Uh, it stands for the Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. And I love that acronym. Uh, this, to him, is a long-term goal that changes the very nature of a business's existence. And I, in closing, last thing I'll ask you, what's a BHAG that you have for P&G that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, what I'd want more than anything for our company, which is something that we haven't ever been able to deliver, at least in the last 30, 40 years, is sustained excellence for all stakeholders. And, and to do that, and to me, what underpins that aspiration is sustained excellence, not to be good for two or three years, then be mediocre in terms of our relative results and our impact, and then come back again and have cycles. But sustained excellence requires something that's very hard to achieve, which is when you're doing well, and right now the company's doing well, we had our best year in 10 years last year, is how do you constructively disrupt all aspects of your business to create tomorrow instead of living in today? And that's hard. So what we've, we've established and, and we broadly communicate it as part of our strategy is we want to constructively disrupt every aspect of our business before others do. And the reason... Each word is important. Disrupt means there's all kinds of disruption going on in the world and the business. And, and, and it's going to happen to us. There's people that want, you know, there's startups coming all over. Every one of our brands has a bunch of startups and people are coming after us. If we can do it constructively in a way that creates value for our employees, for our stakeholders, then we can sustain excellence. And so we've got people right now, we've got a, a wonderful, certainly capability in advertising, but our leader in this area, Mark Pritchard, has an effort to say, what does the future look like? And it may be over the top versus network. It may be social and other means very differently than that. And frankly, we're using social and everything today, but done in a very different way. It may be using more user-generated content that's turned in. It may be a number of different things. Uh, the same thing is how do we manufacture? How do we innovate? We used to have big project teams we fund. And so we've, we've leveraged our learning in Silicon Valley and we have lean innovation teams. We have over 150 small teams working on cool innovations, new forms for products, new spaces to play in, new problems to be solved. Instead of trying to do a project, they find a need area, an unmet need for consumers that's got a total addressable market that's exciting. And we put small teams against it with a little bit of money and a lot of passion see what they can do. And so the whole idea is constructively disrupt so that instead of being done to us at the expense of our employees and our company, constructively disrupt your business. So, so certainly my aspiration is that PNG sustains excellence as a values-driven company that has a purpose, values, and principles that underpins where we're su successful. And we're, we can do this over time because we're constantly disrupting in a constructive way to be ready for tomorrow, which is really hard to do because you have to have no complacency. I've said many, many times, and, and there's a statement that another uh, former CEO said, which is at times people say we're a big company, we've got great technologists, we have a right to win. We have no right to win. There's nothing in the constitution that says P&G should win. We have a basis to compete. We have to earn it every day, every brand, every country. And if everybody goes into it with that mindset, which is we have to earn it, we have to support and earn it for every consumer that we serve every day and every brand, then P&G is well positioned to be competitive five, 10 and 20 years from now. And that's the culture we're trying to create because with P&G people in a positive culture, you can take a great strategy and the bridge to a great strategy to strong results is leadership and culture, a culture that values everybody and leaders that unleash the power of that organization. That's what I want for the future. And when that happens, then you can watch the company just achieve all kinds of new uh, outstanding results. Well, David, I, I thank you again for your time, and I, and I just I'll say that you've you've won this consumer over. Uh, this this has been a wonderful discussion, and it's been enlightening on so many levels. So 
Thank you very much for joining us, and we do appreciate it. Uh, you're very welcome. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. That concludes this episode of the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and the conversation with David Taylor, be sure to leave a favorable review and subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. Additionally, if you are a business owner interested in sponsorship, either of the Entrepreneurship and Sustainability Program at CHCA or an individual episode of the podcast, reach out at our website, chca-oh.org. Additionally, if you are interested in being a guest on a future podcast episode, please reach out as well.